Hello, you're listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded on May 23rd, 2023 at the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. In this podcast, we welcome Lubna Safi to speak on her research entitled Seeing the Words of Poets, Mohammed Benis and the Visual in Moroccan Poetry, which she has conducted in Morocco as a grantee of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. Lubna Safi is a PhD candidate in the Department of Middle Eastern Languages and Cultures and in the Designated Emphasis Program in Critical Theory. She holds a Master's in Comparative Literature from Pennsylvania State University, where she completed a thesis on 20th century Spanish poets and the ways they invoked and mobilized El Andalus, Muslim Iberia, in order to negotiate Spain's changing national, racial, and literary identities. Her dissertation, How the Qasida Sees, Vision, Poetic Knowledge, and the Transformative Capacity of Poetry from Al-Andalus to the Maghreb, examines discourses of visuality and visualization in the poetry and poetics of 12th and 13th century Al-Andalus and 20th century Morocco. Engaging literary, critical, poetic, and optical sources, the project explores how poets and critics discussed processes of visualization in poetry and the effective responses it engendered, as well as its role in individual transformation and collective liberation. Lubna has previously published in The Comparatist and Comparative Literature. In addition to her scholarly work, she's a poet. Her debut poetry collection, Your Blue and the Quiet Lament, won the Walt McDonald First Book Poetry Prize and was published by Texas Tech University Press in August of 2022. Lubna, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So to start, can you give us a little background on the poetic scene into which Mohammed Benis emerges as a poet and critic? Yes, definitely. So actually, I'm going to start a little bit earlier in the 1920s, remembering, of course, that Moroccan poetry was largely oral. And it was pretty much traditional poetry. You could say it was, you know, the inherited forms of the orud, which were the tafaida, which were the traditional forms of poetry. And in the 1920s, particularly during the reform of independence, you get the structures of traditional poetry become altered a little because of the concepts of liberation, community, watan. So you have the reform of independence affecting the traditional forms in ways that are conceptually interesting, but still the actual metric units are pretty much the same. You know, there's it's oral poetry, it's recited, there's a specific meter, the traditional meters, the 16 meters of Arabic poetry. And the main mode, I would say, and the one that Mohammed bin Nis will critique is the mode of shahada, which was important, obviously, during the reform because shahada, meaning to bear witness to something, became important because it was basically a way for poets to speak about the colonization of France and Spain at the time. Um, so invoking issues of liberty, of community, of the nation, of the Moroccan nation uh, above the colonial nation. Um, so shahada is very important here for this poetry and it'll kind of remain the mode of poetry up until pretty much the 70s. Um, you know, after 1956 with the Moroccan independence from France, you get still poetry that is very much traditional. It's not very experimental. It's still got, you know, kind of the same structures it's always had. It's still quite recited, oral, not really written. There aren't that many, you know, poetry collections coming out at this time. And 
This is all, of course, I'm talking about Arabic poetry in, in Morocco, not French poetry. French poetry has its kind of its own thing going on. So Benice is very much interested in Arabic poetry. He writes in Arabic. He, of course, speaks French and writes it and reads it. But he's very much identifying himself as an Arab poet. So you have, you know, 1956, after the Moroccan independence, um, again, not much change is happening in terms of the, the traditional poetry. So, of course, the 60s, French poetry and French intellectual production in Morocco was having a different conversation. For example, among visual artists of the 60s, there was a debate about how to go about decolonizing. And then in the 70s, Arabic poetry in Morocco starts to change a little. You have an era of experimentation. You have poets like Ahmed Mijati and Mohamed Khamar Kanouni and Mohamed Sarghini coming into the scene, along with Benice, of course. And more poetry collections are being published. Poetry comes head to head with the novel, so there's this like impetus for it to change, essentially. And then the poetry of the 70s and 80s is very much in conversation with the Arab world, although unfortunately the Mashriq does not really engage with Moroccan poetry written in Arabic. You know, there are poets being published, but it's not a very like intense engagement with the Mashriq. And this is a really big point that Benice will come to critique in terms of Mashriqi modernity, this kind of marginalization of Morocco. And this is something that has played out throughout Morocco's history, North Africa's history. You have the center, which is the Levant. And then even during the Abbasid and Andalus time, right, Al-Andalus was seen as kind of derivative, as, you know, like on the margin of the center, which was the Abbasid Caliphate. So same thing is happening at this time. Um, the Mashriq is kind of seeing, seeing Morocco and North Africa as on the margin, not really a center for literary or artistic production. So Benice is really frustrated with the kind of discontinuity that he sees in Moroccan Arabic poetry. There's not really a kind of development because you have these periods where poets will come up, they'll rise, they'll write, then they'll kind of recede into the background and another group of poets will come up, but there's no kind of debate or there's no kind of critical engagement between these poets. And of course you have problems institutionally. You have like, you know, neither on the right nor on the left are there any kind of like really important institutions like journals or cultural centers that are supporting poets basically. So these poets are kind of standing on their own. And if you as a poet diverge from the Watani kind of framework, you're not even considered, right? So experimental poets really struggled because they were seen as producing work that wasn't in service of sort of a political agenda of the time, which was this kind of like nationalist we are, you know, this is Morocco, an Arab nation, not a French nation or not a Francophone nation. So all of these together, this whole picture that I'm painting is the scene into which Mohamed Benice comes. And Benice was born in Fas in uh, 1948, and he published his first poems at the age of 20 in Al Alam newspaper in Rabat. And by 1969, he was also publishing in Adonis's journal, Mawaqif. And his first poetry collection comes out also that year in 1969, Ma uh, Kalam, Before Words. And he's a like, phenomenal thinker. He wrote two dissertations. He published the first one, or he submitted the first one in 1978, and it, it was supervised under Abdel Kabir Khatibi, the big Moroccan French critic and writer. And the second thesis was supervised by Jamal Din Bin Sheikh in 1988, so 10 years later. The first dissertation he wrote was about specifically Moroccan poetry, which was kind of a first at the time. And then the second one, he kind of pulls back and thinks about Arabic poetry, modern Arabic poetry as a whole. So Benice is very much engaged with and thinking about not only Maghrib and his place as a Moroccan poet, but also within the wider Arabic speaking world and its poetry.
So can you tell us a little bit more about Benice's concept of writing and how it responds to his frustrations with the state of Moroccan poetry? Right. Exactly. So, you know, I mentioned this idea of discontinuity, which he calls al-inqita. Um, and in 1981, Benice kind of lets out his frustration with this uh, in a manifesto that he writes called Bayan al-Kitaba, which translates to Manifesto of Writing. And he publishes this manifesto actually in the journal that he co-founded called Al-Thaqafa Al-Jadida. He co-founded this journal in 1974 with Abdul Qadir al and Mustafa Al-Masnawi. And all of these poets and writers were coming out of this small town called Al-Mahamadiyya between Rabat and Casablanca. So they're in between two big cities, but they're not in the city, uh, which I think is important to think about. Um, so in this manifesto, Benice is critiquing this idea of shahada that I mentioned earlier. So this idea of only writing political poetry or only writing poetry that is backed by a single framework of thinking about the nation. And he critiques it because while shahada as a term comes from you know, bearing witness or, or witnessing something, so it's very engaged in that way, it still is devoid of sensory experience because it's following kind of formulas. You know, if you think of like chants or slogans, he's kind of thinking of poetry as turning into that. It becomes kind of the same poem written over and over again. It's a poem that is exalting the nation, it's exalting a specific ruler or exalting a specific idea. And he's critiquing that because he's saying, well, it's all in memory. It's not in the actual lived experience of the poet. So essentially, his big critique of Shahada is that it is just political poetry devoid of any kind of personal experience of the poet. And he's offering something else. He's offering a concept that he calls Kitaba. And he basically wants it to be just open-ended. He wants it to be, it's not even poetry. It's both poetry and prose. It's kind of an orientation to the work. So you're writing, you have kind of an openness, a, a mode of questioning. You're skeptical, you're kind of not worried about generic limitations. You're just a writer confronting something that has come up for you. And he sets up four parameters for Kitaba. He talks about experimentation, so this idea of play. Um, he talks about the necessity of criticism, which is an issue at the time because a lot of thinkers and writers writing in Arabic are kind of allergic to theorizing and allergic to writing criticism because they think of it as a Western exportation or something that French writers do. So he addresses this at the beginning of the manifesto. He says, there are people who will say, this is not part of our literary culture. We don't write prefaces. We don't write manifestos. We don't write, you know, criticism. Um, but he's saying in order to address this issue of discontinuity, there needs to be critical engagement. Um, and, you know, the other two parameters that he sets up, so in addition to experimentation and criticism, practice and then liberation. So everything is in the service of the liberation of the self and also of, you know, the community. Um, you know, a lot of later scholars will say, well, Kitaba sounds a lot like the French écriture. You know, Derrida and Barth obviously are important thinkers for Benice. But Benice actually addresses this point in his manifesto and says this term kitaba is not just translation of the term écriture. It is actually rooted in Moroccan and Andalusi modes of literary production. So one thing that he really focuses on in the manifesto is calligraphy, which, you know, is an interesting thing to think about in relation to poetry. And this idea of the body of language being actually like the script in which it's written in and the reader's interaction with a script rather than just the printed word. So he spends some time thinking about calligraphy, specifically Moroccan calligraphy, the Moroccan khat, which he works with. 
So the Moroccan khat is a chance for Benice to bring in Maghribi particularity, right? This is a script that is very unique to North Africa. And he's not saying it's just Moroccan. Of course it's not. It belongs to all North African cultures. And so he's saying this is one way that we as North Africans, as a Maghribi culture, can participate in this larger project of Arabic modernity. And of course, modernity is not a singular modernity. It's multiple and plural. And this is one way that he can kind of do both. Say, okay, there's a particularity to Moroccan poetic and literary production, and it can also engage with a more universal poetic project. So he's kind of one of those poets that straddles like the traditional and the modern, the particular and the universal, and he's very much interested in that dialectic between these concepts. That's fascinating. Are there other examples, in addition to calligraphy and al-khut, of how Morocco's visual culture plays into Benice's concept of writing? Definitely. So I mentioned the khut, and he does actually end up producing two years before he writes the manifesto. He works with a Moroccan calligrapher, Abdel Wahab al-Buri, and publishes a poem called Hakada Kalemani al-Sharq, Thus Spoke to Me the East, published it in 1979 in the same journal that the manifesto will be published in. And it was arranged by the Moroccan calligrapher with the help of Benice. And it's a beautiful kind of work of art, but it is still a poem and this kind of calligraphic work of art. And he will publish later that year another volume of poems called Fi Ittijah Sautika al-Amudi, Again, with the same calligrapher, arranging the poems he had written, I think, a year or two earlier into calligraphic script. And it's, I think he's trying to do multiple things here. Like I said, he's trying to engage a kind of Moroccan or Maghribi particularity, but he's also trying to defamiliarize reading. Um, He wants readers to work for the poem in a way. I think he wants an engagement that is both visual, but also one that is visual in a way that interacts with the body, right? So you have the body, not just of the reader, who's, you know, trying to decipher the poem, you know, probably turning the book around, you know, taking time away to like think about what they just read. You also have the body of the calligrapher. So if we think about the strokes of the pen and the way that you can kind of see the way that calligraphers act of writing out, playing out on the page, it's different than encountering the printed word of a printer or the text that you see in any other book, right? So you encounter Benice's poetry through a specific visual dimension. But beyond calligraphy, which of course is the calligraphy of buildings, when you have Quranic verses written in script on architecture, you have the tashjir and tadbij, which were also part of, um, particularly I would say like Fas is very popular for this kind of work. And I mentioned that Benice is from Fas, so he's very much like thinking about place. He's thinking about the zalij of Fez, the tile work, the color, and all of that comes out in the poems, not just conceptually and like not just thematically, but also in the layout. So he'll have his other books that are not the ones, you know, that engage with calligraphy. The other books are also very much visual works, I would say, because you open the book and on the page you have this kind of interplay of black and white. The words are you know, they're kind of like laid out across the page in a very deliberate way. And I would say deliberate because as you're reading, you're realizing that there's this like meandering that's happening in the poem. A meandering that I think really mimics the meandering of the souk that, you know, in Fas. Um, I was recently in Fas and I was told that there's like 9,000 different like pathways. Um, so this kind of possibility of like going in one direction, coming out in another, or like getting lost even. Um, I think that is definitely an organizing principle of the poems. 
So you're a scholar of El Andalus. How does El Andalus figure into Denise's concept of writing, and how are you connecting 20th century Morocco to El Andalus? Right. Yeah, so Benice is very much influenced by a lot of the Andalusi poets and critics, particularly the same figures that come up in his work are Ibn Arabi, uh, Ibn Hazm, and Ibn Habus. And he's thinking about Al-Andalus, specifically its poetic tradition of the Azjal and the Muashahat, but he's also, I think, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly there's this connection that he solidifies in his later writings particularly in his book Kitabat al-Mahu, where he starts to think about orientations to the past. You know, there's different modes of orienting to the past, and he doesn't want a singular one. This is his critique of traditionalism. It, it has one view of the past, and it's kind of a solidified, sedimented past. The way to think about this is to think that he has two modes of addressing or orienting oneself to the past that he talks about. The mode of Antara, who is a pre-Islamic poet, and the mode of Abu Nawas. So Antara's mode is to stand at the atlal and address them, address the ruins. And this kind of questioning of place is one orientation. And another is Abu Nawas, who legend has it, was told to memorize a thousand poems. His teacher told him, memorize a thousand poems and then you'll be ready to compose poetry. So he does that, he memorizes a thousand poems, comes back to his teacher and his teacher tells him, now forget everything you memorized and then you'll be able to write poetry. So this idea of the past as having left a trace in you that you're recovering, but not in any clear way. So it's there, it's like a specter, but it's not one hegemonic way of understanding the past. And he's very much interested in that. And then of course, there's the Andalusi Madih, which he talks about a lot in his work. Madih being praise poetry. And additionally, Benice published in 2018 a book called Andalus Ashara, which he basically anthologized some of his favorite poems from Al-Andalus. So he's very well read in the area and um, thematically as well as formally, he brings in elements of Al-Andalus. I would say in the way both of Antara and Abu Nawas. So Al-Andalus seems to be very much in his being and it comes out in his poems, not necessarily in any directed way but his kind of mode of questioning, his mode of openness to the past also allows him to do that, to bring Al-Andalus in in a way that isn't prescribed or formulaic. So Benice has written this monumental manifesto, and what was the response? <laughs> yeah, so like I said, it was published in the journal Thaqaf al-Jadida, and it was actually a dedicated issue to that manifesto. So he actually sent it out to a bunch of critics, and they read it and responded to it. He had one detractor, but everyone else seemed to be quite excited about the possibility. Um, unfortunately, it didn't really take off. I mean, like I said, he published that one book, and he never published anything else like that after. Um, there were a few Algerian poets who also ended up writing Arabic poetry using Maghribi script, but they came later and it didn't seem like there was much enthusiasm for that style. I actually met Benice recently and he mentioned this to me. He told me he never divulged the reason for why he stopped or why he didn't try again to collaborate with a calligrapher on another volume of poetry written with Khat. Uh, he didn't divulge the reason to me either, but my sense is that he felt that there was a lot of work to be done in terms of decolonizing mentalities around what poetry is. So both mentalities coming from Western conceptions of what poetry is, but also from traditionalist mentalities of what poetry is. 
So I think that, you know, maybe this project of khat and poetry might come back in the future, but for now it seems like there isn't a readiness to engage with this kind of visual poetry. And I will say that though he doesn't do any official kind of like khat poetry collaborations, I would say most of his work is still quite attached to the visual, not just like I said, through, you know, themes of the zelij or place, but also I think in the way that he works with layout on the page. Great. Lubna Safi, you've been doing some of this research on Mohammed bin Is here in Morocco mm -hmm. with support from the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. Where do you go from here? What's next? That's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I'll be hanging around a little bit and then heading back to the U.S. to write this dissertation. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm really interested in the journal that I mentioned, Athaqaf al-Jadid. I'm interested in its legacy and in the work that it did. I mean, I didn't mention this, but the journal published issues for around 10 years, and then it was shut down by the state because of the bread revolution that happened in Casablanca in 1984. So it had a 10-year run, and then it was shut down. And I think that really impacted the poet. He was really attached to the project, and he actually writes his work that I'm really interested in called Waraqat al-Baha. Four years later, he's in Yemen, and he's writing about fast, and he's writing about just this evocation of place, you know, the way that he's in Yemen, in Sana'a, but he's thinking about Fas. And I think that he needed to be away from Morocco to write this work because this state clampdown impacted him a lot. Particularly, you know, as a poet, he's very much devoted to the freedom of the poet to write and the freedom of the critic to write. And so, yeah, he wasn't able to write this collection, I think, until he left Morocco for a little bit. Um, left kind of that feeling of like, there's someone watching me or there's someone waiting to shut down my journal. Yeah, that's what's next for me. Uh, well, I imagine once you're away from Morocco too, you'll have all kinds of perspective and thoughts about the research you've been doing here. This has been Lubna Safi talking about seeing the words of poets, Mohammed Benis and the visual in Moroccan poetry. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Maghreb and Past and Present podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean app, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, Alexa, iHeartRadio, Player FM, Listen Notes, Samsung, Podchaser, and Boomplay. Listen to us today.